New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Committed activists of the preservation of wilderness and explorer of both the outer and inner wilderness, Brooke Williams is constantly looking to understand and experience the value of wild places and what it means for modern humans. Born as a white male of privilege, he asked the question, how best do I spread my privilege and how can I be of use? In his most recent writings, the answers came in the wind, in the current of the river, in the sound that a raven's wing makes cutting through the solitude. He writes, time spent surrounded by wildness is proportional to one's desire to contribute to the greater good. Then the opposite may also be true. One's propensity to focus on his or her individual wealth and stature while disregarding all other life forms is inversely proportional to the time one spends in the wild world. Today we'll be exploring wildness, not for the answers, but for ideas, possibilities, and inspiration across the great divide in which we find ourselves as Americans with our guest, Brooke Williams. Brooke Williams is an advocate for the preservation of wildness. He writes about evolution, consciousness, and his own adventures exploring both the inner and outer wilderness. He lives in Utah with his wife and partner, the writer and former New Dimensions guest, Terry Tempest Williams. He's author of several books, including Open Midnight, Where Ancestors and Wilderness Meet, and Mary Jane Wild, Two Walks and a Rant. Join us for the next hour as we talk about pilgrimage, both inner and outer, with our guest, Brooke Williams. I'm speaking with Brooke by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Brooke, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's so great to be with you. I've listened forever, and I can't believe uh, I actually get to talk to you. Oh, it's my honor. It's my honor. I am so excited to be here with you right now. And this book, Mary Jane Wilde, is really about you walk twice in this southern Utah Mary Jane wilderness. 
And the first walk was at the beginning of Trump's presidency. And perhaps some might call it the most tumultuous in American history. And then you walked four years later on the eve of Biden's election. So let's talk about the inspiration for those two walks. Well, inspiration is one word for it, but another one is just complete frustration. And I was void of any sort of explanation after. Um, that election in twenty in twenty sixteen, I mean, it's become like uh, you know nine eleven or a lot of the big events where you know where you were when that happened. And and Terry and I were with a group of friends. We had rented a, a room because we expected a big party um, that night to celebrate the the win of Hillary Clinton as the first woman president, and that didn't happen. And um, I was just distraught. And I don't, I didn't even really plan it to, to the point where I, 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 I thought this would be something I wanted to do, but I just did it. And I, I gathered up my stuff. And we live in such a place where you can just walk off the porch and um, disappear for a while. And I did for three days. Um, then I spent, like many of us, four years trying to figure out just what the heck had happened. And what was happening and what was about to happen. And then um, was waiting for the results of the Biden election. And I, I had to go again just because um, so much had happened to me during those four years where I came to some kind of a comfort, some kind of a realization that, that this, this issue, this Trump issue was so much deeper than any of us had ever thought it was. And it wasn't just a temporary thing. And it went way back further than we thought, back way before 2016. And it goes way into the future, as we're seeing now. So um, I, it, was, it was two trips for me to be alone, wander around. Hopefully something came up out of the ground and help me. That, that takes me also to, to thinking about how you as a person who lives in Utah, you have an expanded family there. Most of them are Mormon. You come from that Mormon background as well as Terry. And um, so you have that unique position to be able during, especially during those four years, to have a relationship with your your family members who think very, very differently from you. And I'm wondering, those conversations that you had, how do they affect you? Did you think that you could convince them of something, look at life differently, or they thought they could convince you? Or what were those conversations like? Well, you know, we sort of stayed clear of them because... Um, I, I would. I don't know. I was just not comfortable, and I. The more we saw what Trump represented to to our country and also the planet, the more I couldn't justify that anybody who was close to me had any sort of positive feelings about this person, and um, so I kind of avoided them. Plus, the pandemic helped in that respect because we weren't supposed to go anywhere, and when we did, we just avoided it 
we just pretended that there was more to it, more to life than politics. How did you do it? Well, it was I was the same thing when when the election happened in 2016. I was by myself and I was watching it on television. And, you know, as the night rolled on and on and on, um, I, it was like unbelievable. I, I could not believe how many people were voting for something that disturbed me greatly. I, I got kind of, well, depressed. And I'm really interested in something that you came up with that really tells us about the culture that we're living in right now. And you said that this is something that's been simmering for a long time within our culture. And we've been in denial. Uh, so uh, speak about that, please, Brooke. Uh, well, I feel like Trump is sort of a symbol um, of toxic masculinity, of um, just this power at any cost, um, which is the worst part of what capitalism and democracy has created. And I feel like, and also racism, mainly racism, and I feel like when it, with his election, he gave everybody who felt the way he did the opportunity to like be verbal about it and even to be violent about it. And we've seen what's happened. Um, but I, I feel like there's so many. It's not like there's just a few people out there. There are very many people and they are more interested in this white male power than anything, than even, you know, democracy. I was thinking today, because there's people living on the street where I am that are, they have pro-Trump flags and American flags. There's nothing in my mind that can connect those two. What, what Trump has to do with the America that I know, because he's nothing about democracy. So I don't know, we could go on and on about that, but I just think there's this, been this kind of simmering cauldron of terribleness that has had this lid on it. And finally, he took it, Trump took it off, and there it is for us to deal with. And at least we can see it, and at least we can feel it and hear it every day, um, as opposed to just the rumbling of it that we could ignore for so long. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And I know that you talk about um, people are not stupid. I mean, we we might want to cast people in a certain, okay, these people in this group are this way, and these people in this group are, you know, they're the progressive and the, the right and the left and all of that. And it's wonderful when you bring up uh, somewhere in, in your book, Mary Jane Wild, um, you bring up that poem that many of us are very, very aware of, uh, I think it's um, the translation is by Coleman Barks, and it's um, that poem um, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing. There is a field. I'll meet you there, and that that caused you as you were going on your walk to really, really contemplate that poem. Can you share with us your contemplations? Well, I. I love that poem, but I hadn't thought about it for a long time. 
And I think so much of what we all went through, it's like, we, we always talk about compromise. There may be a middle ground that not everyone um, feels the way I do, but if we want to get along, we have to sort of meet somewhere in the middle. But lately, the middle has been is too far away for either side. We can see that. And then I realized that that poem didn't say between right doing and wrong doing. There, there is a place. It says beyond. Uh, and I think that that was really an epiphanal moment for me because it's like, no, it's not between. There's somewhere out beyond that we have to get to, both, all of us. And uh, I don't know if it's possible or not, but to me it makes more sense and it's more possible than to think of somewhere between. There's a whole other place beyond we've never been to that we have to go. That's that's the, That's what I came up with. Well, it just reminds me, I mean, the beyond is, I think of your walks when you are out in the desert and there's no artificial lights and you are able to really be out there in, let's say, the night sky in a way that is just awesome. And and I I, I want to talk about that huge view that we can have, or even standing on a cliff and overlooking this great expanse of the desert and what it does for our consciousness. So I, I want to talk about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Brooke Williams. He's the author of many books, and his latest is Mary Jane Wild, Two Walks, and a rant. And uh, I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Brooke Williams, and we're talking about walking, contemplating where we are as a culture right now, how we can get into the beyond in that poem um, by Rumi, Out Beyond Ideas. And that's that's hard to contemplate. But I think that you're you're you really are onto something when you walk out into the desert and you're contemplating, um, what if my ideas about life are wrong and you're out in the desert and you're looking over this expanse or at night you're looking up at the stars? How does that help in your contemplation of 
where we can go and what we might be able to do to change the trajectory of our culture? Well, you know, Justine, part of it is, I think of our ancestors going clear back to our earliest beginnings. You know, they they say our species has been around for 200,000 years. Civilization maybe for ten thousand, so that's a long time we spent out wandering around. That's a long time we spent looking at huge, massive views, and that's a long time that we spent looking up at the night sky. And what what did I read recently that only ten percent of the world's population can now see the Milky Way because of light pollution? It's mainly and and what are we missing by that? What what did our ancestors for 180,000 years learn and ingest and absorb looking at long views and the night sky. I think it's a, a resource that we've completely abandoned. And I think we have to trust what happens to us when we, when we get a chance to see that. We live in a place that a community of like 300 people and we don't always agree on everything, but one thing that we agree on is night skies. And we have rules about what your lights can do and how they have to shine at night if they do. And everyone appreciates that. And now we're starting to see dark sky parks and dark sky communities and dark sky towns that are all paying attention to this because something has been missing from, from our lives. And, and I think that's a big issue. I do too. I, I was recently in. Um western Colorado and there was a full moon so the moon when I was going outside the full moon was was a light that is quite strong and it can obscure the Milky Way but as we were driving back to the airport uh, in Montrose early it was dark and the moon had set and so it was dark and my companion and I pulled off the road just so I could see the Milky Way. Yeah. And it was just marvelous. I hadn't seen it in years because I live in a place that has a lot of light pollution and I don't get to see that that view. And my heart was longing for it. I I it was so wonderful to have that moment. And I I'm wondering those of us who don't have access to those broad, broad views. Um, you also talk about an inner wilderness that that we can access. So uh, I'd love for you to share with us the, how we can really enter into our own inner wilderness. That's a good question. Um, by the inner wilderness, I'm referring to sort of the unconscious that Jung describes so well as divided between the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious, the collective unconscious being our entire evolutionary history, you know, that we share with every human that ever walked the earth. And I think there are many ways to tap into that. Some of it is kind of accidental. I think awe is one way by seeing the Milky Way. You just, I could tell just by the way you described it, that you had experienced something exceptional and extraordinary and awe was a way I would describe it, the way you just described it. So that was something maybe you didn't expect. Um, I also feel like uh, there are ways to um, access this inner wilderness, this unconscious world by 
paying attention to what attracts our attention, um, to not just wander through life as you're as as if you're a means to some ends, but realize that everything that is going on around you has some clue, some key, some 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 point of access to that inner world. I tell my students that we do a lot of exercises to try and um, and access it, and a lot of them are skeptical. And I say, look, you can say this is you know a game and it's not real and so on and it may not be i don't know there's no way to prove it which is why we've ignored it for so long but i will guarantee that your life will be more interesting if you live as if there is this inner world and um, i love what jung said he said he loves the outer world but the inner world is what really gets him excited you know when you and when you think about it in terms of i saw a picture i think i described it in the book somebody did a like a fisheye view of the world, which shows the globe from a certain point where there's just little pieces of land around the edges, but most of it's this gigantic sea. And I think about that, that, that deep ocean as being this inner world and the land that's kind of risen above it as being the outer world. And there's so much more going on in the inner world. And the potential is so great that um, it's really captivated me for the last couple of decades. And going back to Jung, uh, he was very much into dreams in the dream world. And boy, in that landscape, we can go to all sorts of places. We are not bound by our physical body at all. Exactly. That's it. But that's what a dream is. You know, Jung would talk about a dream as the this inner world coming to the surface because you need it for some reason and to pay attention to it for that reason. I think you mentioned in the book, you you talk about a dream that you had, which was so powerful. It just, I had to go really, really slow in this part of the book, uh, where you had these twins that they were Siamese twins and where one was killed. Do, do, do you recall that dream? Oh, I can't. I'll <laughs> never forget that dream. I don't know about you or your listeners, but I think dreams are so important and yet and I dream all the time, but rarely do I remember my dream when I wake up. And when I do, sometimes it's a very, what I call big dream. Like I have maybe one or two a year max, maximum. And that dream was huge. It was, uh, I, we were older. I have a Siamese twin. We were connected at the head with one brain. And um, my twin was very aggressive. Um, was what I would define as more of a toxic male. And I got drug into all these situations because, you know, we were joined at the head. So I had to. And then fi finally, the, the dream goes on to where I was so frustrated at some point, I took a knife and knowing that it would kill both of us, I separated us. And I took the brain and I thought that um, that he would die, but at least I would have some time to like live my own life. So basically that's the, the, the gist of it. And, and so powerful was it that I um, got in touch of a Jungian psychologist that is a practicing uh, therapist in Cambridge. And I had her talk to me about it because I was not capable or even willing to look at the deepest elements of it. And what did you come up with? Um, at first, she asked me who the other person might be, but then I realized that they were just two sides of me. 
and um, that I did have as a white American man of my age, that that was a big piece of me. That's how we were raised. And at some point, I just had to separate myself from that. And in a, in a way, it became a very positive dream because it's not as if I was encumbered in reality by that toxic male part of myself. But when I was separated from it in my dream, it was as if I left something behind. So it was really important to me. The problem is what I left behind is this now, this creature running around with no brain, this toxic <laughs> male. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. <laughs> right, right. Well said. Yeah, yeah. That we, it's like acknowledging this part. I mean, I know that I've been participating for the last year and some months um, in several anti-racism racism groups. And I got to discover, and I am discovering my own internal, because of the privilege of my being a, a white person in this culture, that uh, I have racism. I have, it's uh, beca just because of my privilege. And I've been a, able to now incorporate that realization and grapple with it now because it's out. It's not like under the surface, just like as we're talking about in culture right now, what has been simmering, this radical right, um, which will continue until we go, as you say, beyond it. So um, I love that you also talked about paying attention to our great dreams and also, I'm I'm also thinking about paying attention to small things that we can all do. I mean, you you say in your book, being out in the wilderness, and there's a moment when this little moth just lands on your parka, and you spend some moments with that moth, and it takes you on a journey, so to speak. You know, it's so funny you bring that up because. I felt really funny about it when it happened because this moth, and it's happened a hundred times, a moth will land on you and you like brush it off or you watch it. But it took me back to my days in college of that um, famous uh, story about natural selection, where in England uh, there were there was a, a moth that had two, two different phases, a, a light phase and a dark phase. And... Um, the, when the light phase would land on the, the white bark trees, the birds couldn't see it. So they only ate the dark phased moths. But then with the Industrial Revolution, all the trees turned brown because of the pollution. And then the birds could see only the white moths. So there were more dark moths than there had ever been before. So it just took me there and I got it was a really good opportunity for me to sort of riff on natural selection and evolution and um you know where we are with that. Well, that's going to take us into a, a big subject I think about um biological evolution and you really talk about it uh how how through the 200,000 years of humankind um it's it's pretty slow and our DNA is pretty much the same DNA that it was 200,000 years ago in some ways. And 
So how might we actually evolve or help help ourselves here? And that's a subject I want to talk about in just a moment. In I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Brooke Williams. He's the author of Mary Jane Wild, Two Walks and a Rant. And um, also, if you want to be in touch or want to know more about his work, you can go to his, um, well, the website of his publisher, homeboundpublications.com. And um, look for Brooke Williams there. Or you can go to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Brooke Williams. He's the author of Mary Jane Wild, Two Walks and a Rant. And he's also the author of Open Midnight, Where Ancestors and Wilderness Meet. And we're talking about conscious evolution. And I know that you you mention how biological evolution may be too slow for what we're facing right now with uh, climate collapse and climate change. Um, so I'd love for you to say your thoughts about how we might push that evolution to be more conscious. Uh, that's, a, that's such a good question. And I don't even know, and I don't think anyone knows, but something needs to shift. Um, what I've been thinking lately since the book was written is that there's these this, this, these quantum ideas that suggest that it's not going to take like half the world to to shift their thinking, but it's just going to make it's just going to take the the key, a key few people to start um, thinking in a different way and moving and living and working in a different way that could change everything. You know, it goes back to the the hundredth monkey that a lot of people write about and and a lot of people criticize and it may not even be real but that idea that on one island there was uh, a group of scientists that threw sweet potatoes out on the beach for the monkeys and uh, the monkeys would eat, eat the sweet potatoes covered with sand and then one day one female monkey decided to wash the sand off her sweet potato. And it was a lot better, I guess, because a lot of monkeys decided that they would mimic her. And after a hundred monkeys started mimicking her, then an island, um, on an island miles away with no connection, the monkeys started washing their fruit um, before they ate it. And the idea is that at a certain point, not every monkey has to do it, but things shift. And um, Rupert Sheldrake calls it the morphic plane that exists out there and i feel like the more i learn about things like that you know the less proof there really is for it except that it seems real and it seems possible and just because we can't scientifically describe it or have a formula for it doesn't mean it's not there so 
I don't know. I think that that's my job is to kind of spread this kind of information, even though that a lot of people will read about it, kind of roll their eyes back and think about that Mary Jane refers to a certain illegal substance that does a place in the wilderness, you know, because of how I how I write about it. But other people might like sit back and go, well, maybe there's something to it. And that's my job. So when, that's your job. Yeah, well, so... When when you say some of us then start to act in different ways, what are the ways that you feel would most impact our way of being on the, on the planet Earth that would would add to life rather than subtract from life? Well, for me, it's 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 pretty simple. I think being outside. In, the, in a wild place is a lot of it because that's where we evolved. That's where our species learned whatever we needed to learn to, to evolve to into human beings, the most successful species on the planet. That's where we learned it. And then really internalize it because there's a whole external experience to being out that we really are aware of now, which is, you know, extreme sports. And it's a, it's sort of the um, cool thing to do now to be outside doing really active things. And I think that part of it's my age. I was like that too, for a long time. And part of it's my age is that I can't really do that anymore, but I find that just wandering aimlessly being open to whatever occurs to me, I've got to. I've got to feel like something is being ignited inside of me. That is that evolutionary force that we never lost. We think that humans have somehow become the epitome of evolution, and that it no longer is applicable to us. But I don't believe that's true. I believe it's it's a, an active force. It's like a little flame burning burning inside each of us that we need to like blow on and feed and turn into more of a fire. You mentioned wandering and, and extreme sports. I mean, people go for go out in the wilderness and to experience these peak experiences, and they're powerful. But what you're talking about is you use the word wander, wandering, as as opposed to walking, because when we walk, we're we've got a destination in mind. So talk about what you feel when we wander with and holding a question in our mind uh, as we wander. Yeah. Is that a good thing? I mean, Oh, no. I think it's an amazing thing. And I think it's with something we've forgotten. I mean, walking's become transportation or exercise for us. And um, there are so many great books about people write about the tradition of wandering, um, not just for, um, you know, white people of white European descent, but going clear back to the, you know, the Chinese poets. Um, Rebecca Solnet has written extensively about it. There's this tradition of it. Like, I, I think they said that Thoreau maybe walked like an average of five miles a day his entire life. And look what happened to him. And I, I, Darwin, Charles Darwin's a real hero of mine. And I actually got to go to his um, home outside of London. And he had um, a place called the Sandwalk where he would work all day in his office. And when he came to 
something that he had a, was struggling with, an idea, a concept. When he got stuck, when he got writer's block, he would go out with his dog on the sand walk and walk this path that was, you know, through a forest near his, near his home. There's so many people that, um, that swear by this. And, and I think it's the idea is to have the, to go for a walk without a destination, that just the, the, the movement. And I, and I wrote about it a little bit. I had to write about it for um, a magazine a while ago, and I, and I quoted some of it. But it turns out that there is this force, this, this resonance that comes up out of the ground, and there is a place in your foot where you can receive it. And, you know, nobody really has ever proven that or anything else. But it, to me, it makes sense. Because, I mean, and you, I mean, there's probably not very many people who, you know, who, are, who might be listening to this that haven't had some kind of a shift that happens at some, during some kind of a wandering around, especially in a wild place. There's something to it. I really think that we all have access to something outside of our city limits, so to speak that we can, you know, move into, I mean, where I live, it's near the Pacific coast and uh, I can wander on the, through the parks like Point Reyes parks uh, and just wander there, meander on the beach or someone from Iowa certainly have, have places where they can get outside the city and just start to wander. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm also, you mentioned Rebecca Solnit, and I just finished her book, Orwell's Roses. <laughs> just, you know, uh, remembering Orwell, who wrote um, Animal Farm in 1984, and he was an activist and very, very much involved in politics and, and so forth. And, and yet he grew roses. And he would stop and and do this, and that's great. You bring that up because I think the two are really related, you know. And like I said, Rebecca's written about wandering and walking, but that she would write this book about growing roses. I think there is a connection there. I do I love too. The book, by the way. Yeah, me too. I I love that book, and I hope to sit down with her again soon. Uh, just reminds me also. I want to go back to something that you take with you on your wanderings. And this may seem like an odd thing to bring up, but you take with you what you describe four demons. <laughs> do you do you recall those four demons? They yes. push you. They push they follow, you. I didn't take them with me, Justine. They just follow me everywhere. Well, they, um, and you know, it's really funny is uh, in talking about this book, those demons come up a lot because like somewhere somebody said to me, asked me a question about my demons. And she said, I have demons too. I just have different names for them. <laughs> and um, I don't know. There's just that those moments, especially kind of early in the morning where you're almost ready to wake up, but you're not quiet. And you're sort of, that's when all the stuff just comes around and starts to bother you. And, and out like I was, when I go out camping, it takes me a few days to really sleep well. And when I'm only out for a day or two, I don't sleep well at all. And the nights are really long in the winter, which they are in November. Um, 
And so I planned on not sleeping a lot, especially the first trip. There was a, such a big moon. I knew it was going to be bright. I didn't have a tent. Um, and I knew I'd be in and out of sleep many times. So the demons are always right there. And I decided rather than to um, give in to them, I would just sort of um, define them. And I realized there were different demons. They weren't the same demons. Um, they had different um, things they bothered me about. And um, it's funny, like I said, the, that's been a topic that because people relate to that. And we don't talk about it, but yeah, a lot of people have demons. Maybe everyone. I don't know. Well, I, I love I love that when you describe it, you describe the first one uh, tip is Trump is president. And then another one is what you call WHID. What have I done with my life? And another one is Y-A-T-T, you are totally toast. (laughs) That's a great one. And uh, L-I-S-B-B, life is beautiful, but, you know, and these are are the four (laughs) demons, at least uh, that you describe in the book. And and they they really force you to, to think deeper, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Well. You know, even even when I'm visited by demons, when I'm home in my bed, um, that's what I have a choice to do is to, like, wonder, do they really have any legitimate hold on me or am I really okay? And what is it? What, what, why are they bothering me? So there's that. Um, sometimes it's very productive, too. Like, and, and maybe it isn't really a demon, but. I'll, I'll often um, go to sleep with a problem, like something I'm dealing with in writing or some other problem with an, an issue. And I'll often wake up with closer to an answer to that. So there's something going on in the unconscious, but, but I also feel like, and I haven't come up with any solution or answer to this, but these things that seem like demons, it's it's my brain, it's my mind that's turning them into demons, but maybe they're not really. Maybe there's just something that my unconscious is trying to help me with. So yeah. I don't know. I haven't worked through that, but um, no, they were there that night for sure. I'm here with Brooke Williams, and we're talking about wandering and culture and consciousness and all sorts of things. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
Hello, I'm here with Brooke Williams, and he's a writer and activist for wilderness and many other things, and also a a wanderer in the desert uh, near where he lives in Utah. And uh, Brooke, I, I would love for you to say something about the sacred feminine. You you live with a very powerful woman, Terry Tempest Williams, and she is so beautiful. She's so articulate. She teaches, she writes, she's been on New Dimensions many times, and she just is wonderful. And you have had to grapple with living in the shadow of a very powerful woman. And in your most recent book, Mary Jane Wilde, you write about how you've come to some sort of peace that it is okay as a white male in this culture to live in the shadow of a powerful woman. I'd love for you to speak about the sacred feminine and that living in that shadow. Well, there's sort of two pieces to it. One is the the realization um, from being around Native people that that this is a, a very important time, not just in terms of American history, but in terms of the planet itself, and that a lot of different indigenous groups are know this from their stories. And I was at a conference in uh, Point Reyes, I think it was in 2017, and um, I heard an Aleut elder talk about this, and he said, this is a very special time, and it's the time to for the sacred feminine to take power again like they always were until recent times. So there's that, that there's this native, this indigenous idea that the sacred feminine is has always been there, but it's now time to really start to listen to her and to acknowledge her and to let her be our guide. So there's that. And then there's living with a, a very powerful woman. And, you know, not really that we've ever competed but because I've always known that she was ahead of me when it came to writing and to thinking. And she was, her grandmother was very instrumental in her life and mine. I knew her for a few years before she died. But her grandmother knew that Terry was special and that was a deep old soul is what her grandmother called her. And um, I'm not as deep or as old a soul as her. So I've always known that. So there's that. But there's also me realizing how many women, no matter how powerful, no matter how smart, no matter how um, effective they might be, have had to take a back seat or live in the shadow of a powerful man. And you read about them all the time, where these, these women have been, had to lead, lead these secret lives because these, these men, who most of whom got power they did not deserve or did not earn, have grown up feeling or learn have learned that there's a way you treat women and the way that women ought to act that um they're forcing upon these women and i just wonder how many how what the world would look like if women had been in control all this time and when you look at what trump represents when it comes to women i think it's very obvious and it's very illustrative about what i'm talking about but there's this um idea of um we've been through, which is equality, where, all right, women are more equal now. 
not in terms of pay yet, but better. But equality is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about equity, which is what do we do to make up for what we've done? How many men out there have the opportunity to, to step outside, to step into the shadow of the woman that they care about, that they're close to, that they're maybe married to, and try to support her in ways that men have always expected support from women? So there's that. Um, I think it's a really important thing. I, I really believe that if we are going to survive and even thrive in the future, it will mean that um, the feminine is has a much greater and more obvious and visible role in our day-to-day lives. As you say that, um, I realize, and this may be an odd thing to say, but part of my life, 40 years, more than 40 years plus, living with a very powerful man, Michael Toms, who I co-partnered with and worked with. And he always supported me to, to be more and to do more. But it wasn't until he died in 2012 did I truly step into a bigger role in my life, the role that he always imagined for me. So it's it's like um, for women, even when we know that, there's an internal way yeah. of, of us holding ourselves back. And you're encouraging us to just say, oh, go out there, go for it, speak your truth. Is, yeah. is that what you're saying? Exactly. Well, and you're of a different generation. We're in the same generation, but I think we're now at a transition where younger women are not going to like worry about um, the this role, and many of them aren't. So, I mean, I see it in call in these colleges where it's like, no, this is this is this is my world too, and. I think it's really, really exciting, and I can't wait to see what happens as more and more women are empowered by um, just the circumstances and also the realization that basically men have sort of made a mess of things. So, you know, and I wasn't going to bring it up but uh, about you and Michael because, you know, I didn't know, I don't know that much about it personally, but, but still that, that p- partnership that you had you know, there was still probably some, like you just described, some imbalance. And, and it, it's fascinating to hear that it was mainly um, it was self-imposed on your part. Yes, exactly. So, uh, and I'm, I agree with you about young, the other new generations, younger generations, that there's a difference there. Um, I'm too, am looking forward to the implementation of that difference of actually appearing in culture in a widespread way, in that tipping point way that you talked about. Um, I would also like to talk about uh, the role of the artist. Uh, You quote uh, David Hinton in his book, Existence, a Story, and he writes, Native American rock art does not depict, but enacts. And I'm just very interested in the role of the artist in our culture, because I think, personally, I think it's very powerful. And that that art, whether it's uh, 
the um, visual arts or dance or 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 whatever whatever art poetry whatever art it is that there's something that gets invoked that's deeper than our intellectual mind which is so huge and takes so much room in culture so art talk about it enacting i i actually looked up uh, some of the synonyms for enact uh, and it's actualize deliver bring to pass uh these are some of the synonyms for enact so artist as as someone that invokes enactment is there anything that any comment that you have on that well you're just making me think about it because um during the pandemic uh david hinton's books were really helpful to me along with um Bill Porter, who, who's uh, also called Red Pine, they're both Chinese scholars and, and translators. And I really started to like sort of make sense of what was happening around me, reading their books and, and being in communication with them. And one of the biggest issues I had was that difference between um, enactment and depiction. And I loved it when David, he, he grew up in Utah and he saw a lot of rock art. And that was where I was able to kind of make a little more sense of it, that we're so, we're so quick to say, what does this mean? You know, not just rock art, but any art. What does it mean? What are they trying to say to me? What is, what is this dance really trying to do? How can I interpret this dance differently? But this idea of enactment, like you say, bringing to pass. Um, and I, I really love the, uh, the think about the idea of um, this whole creative process that goes into making art that is, I think, based on um, a lot of what's going on in our collective unconscious, that this is one way that it comes to the surface. And if, in fact, it is our evolutionary history, including everything we ever needed to save ourselves, then the, what comes out has got to be something that's valuable for us. and. It's not a matter of depiction. It's not up to us to depict what it is, but it's just the enactment of its of its own self that that is important. And it's and it goes back to this idea that maybe there is a tipping point. But I think artists play a huge role, and it's exciting to think about it in those terms. They're not just giving us a secret message we're supposed to interpret. There's there's this something is being created. And what is it? And it, it seems to be a direct transmission in some way, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's really well put. I want to thank you so much, Brooke, for being with us today. I've enjoyed this conversation and wandering with you in the wilderness of conversation. Well, let's go do it in the big trees near where you live someday, huh? Oh, for sure. Thank you so much. That's a date. I've been speaking with Brooke Williams. He's the author of many of several books, including uh, The Open Midnight, Where Ancestors and Wilderness Meet, and also Mary Jane Wild, Two Walks and a Rant. And if you want to be in touch with him or know more about his work, go to his publisher's site, homeboundpublications.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening 
to New Dimensions. This is program number 3750. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.